0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The rest of you can open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We'll be in chapter 21 today. Genesis chapter 21. There are paperback Bibles under the chairs. In front of you, if you didn't bring a Bible with you. So help yourself to one of those Bibles. Um, And Genesis 21 is on page 9 of that paperback Bible. Something that we tend to take for granted today is the fact that uh, we can fly. You know, we can go down to the airport and get in a plane and get pretty much anywhere in the nation. In fact, we can get anywhere. Uh, in the world by getting on an airplane. Uh, Really, that's more amazing than it might seem because just a little over 100 years ago, you know, that wasn't possible. (laughs) Uh, And in fact, nobody even thought it was possible Uh, except for a couple of brothers in Dayton, Ohio who were hard at work trying to develop an aircraft that they could put into the air and uh, they were gaining some success there. There was a time when they got that thing in the air for about a half a mile and it was actually even able to do a half turn and start coming back in the direction that it was sent. And word started getting out in the community that the Wright brothers were getting an airplane in the air and it was flying and you know how many people came out to see what was going on? Virtually nobody. Because nobody believed it was possible. Dayton Daily News, the publisher of the Dayton Daily News even admitted, he said, when we heard these words coming about what was going on with the Wright brothers, we didn't even bother sending a reporter out because we didn't believe it. We didn't believe it was possible. Sometimes it's really hard to believe the unbelievable. And at that time in history, again, just a little more than 100 years ago, Flying was considered impossible. The Washington Post said it is a fact that man can't fly. (laughs) And wow, those odds were defied through the work of the Wright brothers. Now, that makes me think of some of the things we read in the Bible. You know, there are things in the scriptures, can we just admit this and be honest here for a moment? There are things in the scriptures that seem unbelievable. (laughs) Isn't that true? That there are just things that we see that don't seem plausible. They don't seem to fit with the world that we know. And when we read these things in the Bible, sometimes we become filled with doubt, we become filled with skepticism. And we might be afraid to talk, talk about those doubts and those skepticism in the church in particular because we're not sure what people are gonna think of us because this is the place where we're all supposed to believe. We might think we're bad Christians if we have certain doubts. We might even wonder if we can even be a Christian if we have certain doubts and skepticism about things that the Bible says. And certainly the Christian story is no exception to that. In the Christmas story, what we're hearing is this um, declaration that the creator of the universe has become a man. Now, that's kind of hard to believe. We hear a story of a virgin giving birth... We heard the Washington Post say, it's a fact that man can't fly. Well, we might say in response to that, it's a fact that virgins don't give birth. We hear in the Christmas story about a star that kind of acted like a GPS system, directing people to the birth of Christ. And we hear that and we might think, that just sounds unbelievable. I'm not sure I buy it. What do we do when we're called to believe the unbelievable? That's what we're gonna be talking about here today. We're in a sermon series called The Mothers of Jesus for the Advent season. And what we're looking at are the uh, prominent mothers in the biblical story. We learned last week when we started this series that there are numerous examples in the Bible of prominent mothers, women who give birth at key times. Mothers and childbirth seem to be this prevailing ongoing theme In the Bible, and in particular at Christmas. And so last week, we looked at the very first mother in all humankind, whose name was Eve. And we saw about the promise that God gave to Eve about a descendant that would come eventually and crush the head of the serpent. And today we're going to be looking at a mother named Sarah. From Genesis chapter 21. Now, the story of Abraham and Sarah actually begins in chapter 12 and goes all the way up to 21. So, we're kind of getting in at the end of their story, at least the story of Sarah's miraculous childbirth. But, you know, the fact is, we did learn to fly. And what was considered impossible became possible. And what we're going to read about here in Genesis 21 is something very similar. The impossible happened to Sarah. So let's please stand and read Genesis 21. Genesis 21, we'll look at verses one through seven. After Sarah had been promised that she would have a child, uh, we read here about what happened. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son when Isaac, uh, circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Lord God, open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So just as the word was going out in Dayton, Ohio about the Wright brothers, and there was a refusal to believe that, so has the word gone forth in the Bible. And this is what we're going to look at here today, the word promised and the way that was received and the way that kind of worked out in the story. So the first thing we want to look at as we consider believing the unbelievable is God's promise clearly stated. Let me show you here in the beginning of chapter 21 how central the word of God is to this passage. Notice how this is repeated. The Lord visited Sarah in verse 1, as he had said, as the Lord had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Later in verse 4, we see that they end up circumcising Isaac at eight days old as God had commanded. God said, God promised, God spoke, God commanded. So we have this emphasis here on the word of God going forth and in particular a promise that has gone forth to Abraham and Sarah. So what in particular is this promise? Now to understand this passage in chapter 21 we're gonna be spending a lot of time uh, just reviewing the story of Abraham and Sarah that come in the chapters before. But here's, here's the promise that came to Abraham and Sarah. It started all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And this is when God came to Abraham and he made this promise. He said, Abraham, you are going to be a great nation. I am going to make of you a great nation. A wonderful promise, but there was one problem. And that is that Abraham had no children. But not only did he not have children, but in chapter 11, verse 30, just right before these verses, we also learn that Sarah was barren. And so here comes this promise that somehow descendants are going to come from Abraham that are going to be numerous enough to make a great nation out of it. And Abraham hears that and and just thinks, how can that possibly be? I don't have kids and I have a wife who's barren. So that's the the first promise that we see to Abraham. Uh, It's repeated in chapter 15 to some degree. And then we get to chapter 17 and we see it's repeated again. And here the promise is a little more specific. God comes to Abraham and he promises specifically that Abraham, you're gonna have a son and the son is going to be by your wife, Sarah. The same Sarah who was barren, according to chapter 11, verse 30. So in chapter 17, that's where we see uh, Sarah's name changed. Originally it was Sarai, but then it was changed to Sarah, which means princess. And the problem that we learn here as we get some more information in chapter 17, is that not only is Sarah barren, but Abraham is 100 years old, and Sarah is 90. So that, that's the promise, very clearly stated. I mean, it can't be understood in any other way. God says, Abraham, you're, you, the great nation is going to come from you, and your wife is going to have a son. Well, then in chapter 18, it gets even more specific. God comes and repeats again to Abraham and Sarah, this promise. This is the story of the three men who come to visit Abraham and Sarah. We learn that they're angels and they come and they're talking to Abraham and they say it again. Sarah's gonna have a son. (laughs) This same 90 year old Sarah and we have an added addition here and that is that this son is gonna come about this same time next year. And so it gets even more specific. Now we have a time limit and we see here in chapter 21 at the end of uh, verse 2, that uh, that Sarah conceived and bore uh, Abraham a son in his old age at the time at which God had spoken to him. So that's a reference to this passage in chapter 18, a very specific time that this was going to happen, and it happened exactly when God said it would. So we have clearly here something that seems unbelievable that's promised to Abraham and Sarah. Sarah is... Her womb is twice dead, we might say. Not only is she barren, but she's also 90 years old. Birth seems unbelievable, and yet the clear statement from God as he's repeated over and over again, Sarah, you're going to have a child. Now, how do we typically react when we hear something like that? I mean, I wonder how, if you were Abraham or Sarah, how, how you would react. Or if you were living in the late 1800s and people started talking to you about the possibility of flying, I wonder how you would react. I wonder how I would react. I wonder if I would have the capacity to believe or if I would be overcome with cynicism and doubt. I, I, I don't know. But I do know this, that one of the ways we often respond when we hear Promises in the scriptures that seem implausible or seem unbelievable is what we do. Is we kind of adjust the Bible, we we kind of um, reevaluate a little bit, and we put it in another form that makes it a little more plausible, a little more understandable. And you know what? That's exactly what Abraham and Sarah both did. In chapter fifteen, when God comes to Abraham and makes this promise, we learn that what Abraham said is, you know, I'm childless. God, so maybe it's Eliezer of Damascus, the servant in my household. He throws out this name because what Abraham is thinking is it certainly can't happen to Sarah. It can't happen to me. So this promise, maybe it's going to happen to this other guy in my household. And God says, no. No, I don't mean him. I mean Sarah. And then we see Sarah also responds. And this is the more famous story in chapter 16. Sarah is hearing this promise from God, it seems unbelievable to her, so what Sarah says is, maybe what God meant, since clearly he can't mean that I'm gonna have a baby, even though it was clearly stated that she would, maybe it's not gonna be me, maybe maybe I gotta figure out another way to do this to help God along, I mean, obviously he's promising something that can't happen, so I'm gonna do it my way, so she devises a plan where Abraham can have relations with Sarah's servant, a woman named Hagar, and Abraham listens to Sarah. Abraham goes in, has relations with Hagar, and Ishmael is born. And so now there's this hope among Abraham and Sarah that maybe Ishmael is this son. So Sarah and Abraham, they, they concoct this plan. That seems so much more plausible. Abraham first thinking Eliezer. That just seems so much more plausible. Sarah says, have a relationship with Hagar. Hagar, that seems so much more plausible. Maybe we can make the word, maybe we can help God along here. Now, isn't that what we often do when we see things in the Bible that just don't seem plausible? They don't seem right. We just figure, we'll, we'll figure it out, God. We'll do it our way. There were scholars years ago who in response to the resurrection of Jesus came up with theories like something called the swoon theory they theorized that perhaps Jesus didn't really die on the cross and maybe he just kind of fell into kind of a near coma and he was just swooning there and then eventually he woke up and so what we really saw was not a resurrection but just Jesus being awakened from a semi-coma kind of situation because we all know the resurrection is unbelievable so there's got to be another way Other scholars thought maybe the disciples who reported the resurrection were hallucinating. Maybe they didn't really see Jesus. Maybe they just kind of dreamt that they saw Jesus. Even though that would have required hundreds of disciples to all have the exact same dream, which seems equally ludicrous. But because in their minds resurrection is not possible, they had to come up with another idea. And I wonder how often we do that. I wonder if you do that sometimes. You see something in the Bible, it doesn't seem right to you, so you come up with your own plan to make it a little easier. As we see things in the Bible that don't seem right to us in the world we live in. you know, Like the Bible says pretty clearly that Jesus is the only way to the Father. I am the way and the truth and the life, Jesus says. No one comes to the Father but through me. And we live in a world where there's all sorts of different religions and we know people who practice these different religions and they seem like very nice and respectable people and we hear that and it doesn't sound plausible to us. How can that be true? And so we start kind of working with it a little bit. Well, you know, maybe, maybe what really is meant here is that if people do the best they can in their religions and just be really good people, that somehow they'll get saved through Jesus, without even knowing Him, maybe that's what that means. I mean, that's what some people submit is possible. Or with maybe the teaching on the doctrine of hell, for instance, which we see in the scriptures again, this idea of a place where some people go, a place of torment and, and punishment. And in our current world, we we just don't like the idea of judgment. We don't like the idea that that place could exist, and so we make it more plausible. We say, well, maybe all those things in the Bible about hell are, are, are figurative. Maybe it's metaphorical. Or we say, I think really what the Bible means is it's talking about the hell that we create for ourselves on earth in this life. Anything to kind of switch it up and make it easier. Or, What we see very often with uh, teaching on sexual ethics today and the Bible's teaching on homosexual activity, we'll see people look at those passages and then they'll come up again with alternative explanations. Maybe what this means is that there was a kind of homosexuality practice then but it's not the same as now and we know so much more now than Paul and the Bible writers did then. So certainly what it says isn't what we think it means. We know better so maybe it's okay. That sounds so much more plausible. I wonder how you might be doing that in in your own life in, in some way. Putting aside what the Bible clearly states in order to make it understandable and easy. That's what Abraham and Sarah did in response to the promise clearly stated. But here's why they did this. Because in response to the promise of God, there was doubt So we're going to consider here God's promise honestly doubted. This is what leads us to begin to toy with the scriptures and adjust it to our liking. It's the doubts that we have about what we read in it. So let's look here at verse 6 in chapter 21. Start with verse 5, actually. It says, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Now, those those terms there, laughter, are very significant because they show up earlier in this story of Abraham um, and and Sarah, this idea of laughter. And it has very deep significance. First of all, we saw it back in chapter 17. So I told you about the promise that came to Abraham about Sarah having the son. And we look back at chapter 17, we see the way Abraham responded. When Abraham heard this promise, he fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall, Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Abraham's response was to laugh at God. Well, we see this again in Sarah's life when God came and uh, again talked to the three, or when the three men came to talk to Abraham and promised to Abraham that Sarah was going to have a child. Sarah is actually there and she's overhearing. She hears this conversation about her having this child. And then we read this. Here's how Sarah responded Sarah laughed to herself. Saying, "Am after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Abraham and Sarah laughed. Now, we can talk a little bit about what kind of laughter is this. I mean, we kind of laugh in different ways, right? Sometimes we hear a good joke and, and we laugh. It's just sincere, natural laughter. Sometimes we laugh nervously when someone says something kind of embarrassing and we don't really know what to say, and so we just kind of laugh And then there's sometimes this kind of cynical laugh, kind of a laugh of of unbelief, a laugh of doubt, a laugh of dismissal. And, And it seems like that's closer to what we're getting to here in the way that Abraham and Sarah are laughing. But the question even here is exactly how much unbelief is present here? Is this, is this a laugh where Abraham and Sarah are mocking God? Is this some kind of defiant unbelief? Or is this perhaps something closer to kind of honest doubt? Is it the case maybe that Abraham and Sarah, when they hear this unbelievable promise, are just simply reacting exactly like you would react, and exactly like I would react? which is just, I don't know God, that doesn't seem right. It just doesn't seem plausible. And out of their mouths naturally comes this laugh. I don't think Abraham and Sarah are mocking God. I don't think this is an example of hardened unbelief in their lives. And the reason why is because later when we get to the New Testament in Romans chapter four, Paul begins referring to this very same incident, this very same story, and he talks about Abraham, in particular, in his response to this promise. Paul doesn't mention Sarah, but he does mention Abraham. And he says this. He says, in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. So here we have this declaration that actually Abraham seemed to believe the promises, but didn't we just read? Didn't I just show you on the screen that Abraham laughed? And didn't we just see how... Abraham thought Eliezer was going to be the fulfillment of the promise. And didn't we see that Abraham believed the word of his wife and joined with Sarah in going into Hagar and kind of coming up with their own plan about how the promise was going to be fulfilled? Weren't those all examples of how Abraham, at some level, didn't believe and was filled with doubt? Yes. And yet, here we see he was fully convinced and he grew strong in his faith. What what, what does this mean? I think what we have to do is put these two together. This is like a lesson in biblical interpretation. We always have to allow various parts of the Bible to interpret the other parts of the Bible. And so when we look at Genesis, we see, yes, Abraham filled with doubt. We look at Romans 4 and we see, but Abraham walked in faith. And he set an example for us. And what I think this tells us is this, that apparently godly living and honest doubt can coexist. That that you can be a person who wrestles with doubts. It's natural to have these initial responses of questioning to some of the things we read in God's word. That doesn't mean that you're a bad Christian. It doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. Because in Abraham's case, he doubted, and yet he's held up in Romans 4 as an example of godliness. There, There is a difference, friends, between hardened unbelief and honest doubt. And a guy named Henry Drummond says it like this, doubt is can't believe, unbelief is won't believe. Doubt is honesty, unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light, unbelief is content with darkness. So if, if, you're, if you're a doubter, if you're the skeptical type, and I think to some degree we, we all are, I, I would just ask you, which of these is you? Are you like wanting to believe, but you're just finding it hard? Or are you just like, I'm not going to believe? Are you honestly seeking an answer to your question? Or are you stubbornly refusing the answers that you're receiving? Are you looking for light? Are you knocking? Are you praying? Are you pleading? Or are you in darkness and happy to be there with no plan for how to get out? Are you an honest doubter, or are you in hardened unbelief? Two things I think we can conclude here about doubt. First of all, doubt is not in itself an evil thing. We see this in the life of Abraham. We see it in the psalmists very often. The psalmists are expressing their doubts to God. I I would say that to some degree, doubt can be a helpful thing, a healthy thing, Because if you face your doubts and you acknowledge them and then seek to find answers to those doubts, what you'll find is that your faith is actually strengthened and you're actually prepared then for the disputes and the objections that might come your way as a Christian. So doubt in itself is not an evil thing, but to balance that, I think we have to say this, doubt also is not a virtuous thing. In other words, doubt is not something to be sought out. It's not something to be pursued. It's not a badge of honor. It's not something to be proud of. There seems in this age to be this kind of attitude that to be a doubter is is to be some kind of hero, That, that if you're a doubter who won't accept anything, that somehow you're a more honest thinker than everybody else. The scriptures do not present doubt to us as a necessarily good thing. For instance, Jesus is on the boat with the disciples. You remember, Peter gets out and he starts walking on the water. And then he begins to sink. Jesus out, reaches out to him and says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Remember Thomas After Jesus' resurrection, he's wanting to see Jesus, and he says, I'm not going to believe it until I see him. And so Jesus comes and presents himself to Thomas and shows him the wounds, and then Thomas says he believes, and Jesus gives a very clear command. Stop doubting, Thomas, and believe. So while doubt is something that comes to us naturally, it's not an evil thing in itself. It is something that we are called to work through. It's something that we are called to try to leave behind. And we do that with the means of grace that God has promised. We, we pray to God. We ask him to open the door, to show us the light, to give us clarity, to dispel our unbelief. If you're a doubter, you're a skeptic, and you're caught, and you feel like, I can't believe, and I don't even know if I'm a Christian. I mean, are you asking God to open your mind and to give you answers? the means of grace of the sacraments. We come here every month and we take the the bread and the cup. The the sacrament is a place where God's spirit is at work increasing our faith. That might sound unbelievable, but it's true. God works through the sacraments to bolster our belief. Sitting under the preaching of the word, sitting under the teaching of the word in Sunday school, hearing the Bible preached. The scriptures say faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. The way our doubts are dispelled is as the word comes to us and the spirit works and puts them aside. Your own personal reading and study, authors like Tim Keller and C.S. Lewis have sought to answer many of the doubts and the questions that Christians and unbelievers have. Pick up their books, read those, study those, bring your doubts to these men and ask for God to alleviate them. So God's promises can be honestly doubted we see this here in the life of Abraham and Sarah the last thing we want to look at is this that God's promise is wonderfully fulfilled because the question that we ought to have here as we get to chapter 21 um, as we look at the big picture Is this? Remember last week, we looked at Genesis 3.15, the promise made to Eve that she was going to give birth to a descendant, and this descendant was going to crush the head of the serpent. And here was the hope for humankind that a Messiah would come and overcome evil and kill the serpent, put away the devil. We have this promise, a descendant is going to come. Well, that descendant didn't come in Cain or Abel or Seth. And now we get to the story of Abraham and Sarah, And we see that they are in the line of Eve. And if this promise of redemption is going to come, Abraham and Sarah have to have a child. But we see their barrenness. We see their age. And as we read this story, we ought to be thinking, oh no, what's going to happen if they can't have a child? If they can't, redemption is over. Salvation is impossible. We can't be saved unless Abraham and Sarah have a child. It's like, you remember those old... Uh, Batman shows in the 60s I know a lot of you are too young to remember that but th- there are half an hour programs of Batman and he was always fighting the Riddler or the Joker and in every single episode near the end Batman would be tied up in, in some impossible situation that he couldn't conceivably get out of and then it would cut to a commercial and, and you're left wondering H- how is Batman going to get out of that it looks impossible And that's the same kind of feeling we should have as we look at the story of Abraham and Sarah. They're in a bind here. God's in a bind. What's he going to do? But God does have something in mind, doesn't he? Chapter 18, after God made this promise to Sarah, he said to her, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And as we get to chapter 21, what we just read, we find that the answer is no and we see in verse seven Sarah says who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children yet I have borne him a son in his old age in other words she's saying who would have thought this would have been possible who would have said that I could have a child who would have ever dreamed that this could happen but nothing is impossible with God so Abraham and Uh, Sarah, they named their child Isaac. That word means laughter. So this is not the laughter of unbelief any longer. This is the laughter of joy. This is the laughter of gladness and thankfulness that God is not opposed, not limited by anything. Now, this ought to make us think of something, friends, as we think about Christmas. Because there was another woman who came along. Many centuries later, for whom having a child was impossible. This woman was a virgin, it's like Sarah was barren. Sarah had an old husband, this woman had no husband. And yet we see in Luke chapter one, the angel comes and says to Mary, after announcing to her that she was gonna give birth, nothing will be impossible with God, nothing. Did you see the similarity between those two verses? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Nothing is impossible with God. And Mary ends up being the one who finally, after all of these centuries, gives birth to the descendant of Eve, the son of Sarah, the son of Mary this one who finally has come into the world in fulfillment of all these promises and who goes to a cross and lays down his life and sheds his blood and is resurrected from the dead so that his people can be forgiven of their sins. And that's the promise we get. And you see the point here is that salvation is something that is entirely of God. Salvation is totally of grace. Salvation is an absolute miracle Abraham and Sarah, with all their efforts to cause salvation, couldn't do it. And all of their doubts and cynicism couldn't even stop it. Because the one who was going to do it was God. And God is faithful to his promise no matter how weak our faith is. God is always going to do what he promised to do no matter how much we might doubt. Because salvation has nothing to do with our efforts and everything to do with God's faithfulness to his promises, his power, his grace, his might. Now, to be clear, friends, this is not a promise that everything impossible is possible. To say that God can do anything is not to say that He will do anything. But one thing I know is that God is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all righteousness. That God will give you a place in His kingdom. That God will forgive your sins, that God will cover up all of your shame, that God will give you his righteousness, that God will place you in his family, that God will raise you from the dead one day in a glorious resurrected body. If you have turned from your sin and have taken your faith, no matter how weak, no matter how feeble, no matter how shaky it is, and have placed it in this strong and mighty Savior. Isn't it a wonderful thing that God always does what he says he's going to do? And that's one of the wonderful meanings of Advent that we'll continue to explore in this series. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we confess to you our faith is weak. We confess to you that we often doubt. We confess to you, Lord, that much of what your word says seems unbelievable, but you are the God who does the unbelievable and does the impossible even saving sinners like us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen.